Welcome to Digital Transformation With, the transformation podcast hosted by me, Paul Shepard, founder and CEO of WeBuildBots. I caught up with Michael Sage, head of digital at Chelmsford City Council recently, to discuss the organisation's digital transformation journey. Among other things, we covered the benefits of working in a flat structure, Chelmsford's move to the cloud, and the importance of leveraging conversational data to better understand and better serve Chelmsford's citizens. I'm still learning as I go with these pods, so there's an annoying little echo at times, but if you can get past that, I think you'll find this is a useful episode packed with applicable insights. And as always, if you'd like to feature on Digital Transformation With, just drop us a line at hello at wbb.ai and we'll be in touch. Thanks for listening. Hi Michael, um, I hope you're well. Can we first start with um, the question I ask everybody at the start? Who are you and what do you currently do? Hi Paul, yeah, I'm very well, thank you. I'm still getting used to working from home for the for the 18th month. Um, so I'm Mike Sage, I'm Head of uh, Digital at Chelmsford City Council. Um, the digital team kind of comprises of a, of a couple of big-ish teams. Um, we've got our kind of traditional IT function, which is um, our service desk, our infrastructure team, our application support, um, GIS and kind of address management, which is pretty unique to a local authority. Um, and then the other side of the team is our development and programs and projects team. Um, our web team sits within that um, group as well. Um, so in total, there's, a, there's about 31 of us in the team at, at Chelmsford doing the um, everything with a plug on it work. And you sit, uh, you sit atop that whole kind of team of thirty-one. Presumably, there's a, um, a a management structure underneath you, or, or are all those thirty-one people reporting into you? Um, so we, we've tried to keep it reasonably flat. So I, I do. I only have two direct reports, and then they they have a couple of direct reports each. But it's a relatively flat structure. We kind of foster a bit of informality within the team and, and within a hierarchy because we found that a lot of the really good ideas come from people who are, you know, answering the phone on the service desk or, or actually doing the development work. So it's really useful for us to have a, a flattish structure to to pick up those ideas and innovations. And it also allows kind of open conversations about um, what's going on and, and what people think about the direction the council's taking. In terms of the structure above me, I report into the director of um, corporate services and she reports into the chief exec um, and sits on the management team. So we don't we don't have a, a kind of CTO role. And in a lot of ways that's quite good because my director trusts what we're doing is right. We built up a reputation for doing good work. It does mean that we do have a fairly clear run into into management team with any of our initiatives or ideas we want to run with. Yeah, it sounds like it's fairly flat above you and and beneath. It's a great point about those flat structures and how they can foster a bit more innovation because some of those ideas do come from the the people who are maybe at the coal face and and in a in a 
in a deeper structural um, scenario wouldn't be able to get their ideas up the chain to, to see them implemented. So I think it's I think it's a really good way of, of making sure that those ideas come to the fore. Yeah, and so last year, I mean, we actually started it in 2019, but um, we set up a what we're calling our digital portfolio office, and the chief exec actually owns that. Um, the chief exec, uh, myself, and a couple of other senior managers have a uh, a meeting uh, once every couple of weeks where we take ideas from across the organisation. Um, and because it's got the backing of, of the chief exec and things, it, again, it, it really does flatten the structure and anyone could submit an idea. Um, so, for example, we've had some really good ones come in from our customer contact centre. Um, we've had some come in from our waste team who previously hadn't really had a way to communicate their ideas to the chief exec without perhaps going to managers who, who might not be so supportive of a new idea. We had a very similar conversation with um, Wrexham Council um, and it was around waste, actually, just saying that sometimes it's the even the guys in the service line or, or even in the carts that, that, you know, have the ideas because of what they're seeing on a day to day basis. If there is such a thing, could you talk me through a, a, a typical a typical day in, um, in, in your role? I mean, there isn't really such a thing as a typical day. I mean, I think a lot of the stuff that I, I kind of deal with can be escalations from the service desk. We spend a lot of time on making sure that our customer experience and, and dealing with us as a team is as good as it can be. Um, I'll spend a bit of time working on major projects that we've got coming up. Um, so for example, at the moment, um, we're looking to replace our contact center, which I'm sure we'll talk about more. Um, we're also looking at um, moving our service desk software into a full SaaS solution to allow a bit more self-service and things. And we've got our um, digital transformation program, which is going to be a never-ending program. We've, we've warned the organization that it, we're in a, a world of constant change now. Yeah. And um, so we spend a bit of time doing that. Um, at the moment, we're currently doing a little bit of recruitment as well. We've had a couple of people leave. Um, to, to move on to amazing opportunities so i'm doing a bit of recruitment at the moment as well um and then something that i think is really important in my role is spending a lot a reasonable amount of time reading um you know seeing what's going on in the industry taking a look at any new innovations you know is it something we should get involved in you know does a local authority need to be involved in iot in the main probably not are there elements of that and, and things that we can pick out and use. I think, you know, we can. And I think, you know, that IT is, for me, an exceptionally exciting industry. Um, you know, I know a lot of people will think that's very weird. Um, but, you know, the, the, the speed of change, um, things like uh, Office 365, which just totally changed the way that we roll out applications and the way we train the organisation and the way we engage as an IT team with the rest of the, the authority. What does that actually mean to, to, to Chelmsford when you, when you talk about moving the contact centre or replacing the contact centre? What, can you break that down into a few constituent parts? Yeah, so we're, we're just kicking off a programme of work. Um, we have one main contact centre, but we also have uh, four or five smaller kind of 
customer touch points within the organization. Um, we migrated to uh, Skype about uh, two or three years ago. Um, so our contact center uh, is, a, is a kind of overlay for, for Skype. We're migrating to Teams at the moment. Um, and we're taking that contact center with us. But what we want to do is we really want to consolidate the touch points. Um, we really want a kind of single pane of truth about our customers, and we're, we're building that in Dynamics CRM at the moment. Um, but more importantly, and I think where we've seen a lot of change is the need for um, appropriate channels to be available. So a few years ago, everyone was talking about channel shift where you said, we don't want people calling us, we don't want people coming in, we want everyone to use the internet. Um, and while it was a really great initiative um, for, for, for us as a local authority, it didn't quite fit our profile. Um, so I've worked in a, in a few local authorities. Um, I've worked in one in, in Norfolk, and we looked at channel shift, and we realised that the people who were picking up the phone or, or coming in were mainly vulnerable people. And yeah. the last thing you want to do is exclude someone when they're vulnerable. You know, you don't want to say, you know, have you tried our website, uh, our website to someone who's who's in, in desperate need or who's old and doesn't have access to the technology? Um, that's not to say that you know a lot of people don't. You, you know, a lot of people do use technology, and a lot of people you know kind of embrace it across all ages. Um, so what we're talking now is about kind of channel optimization or a channel appropriate contact models. So for some people that might be live chat, for some people it might be picking up the phone, for some people you know it might be filling in a form on the website or jumping on teams or you know or, or whatever. So it's it's a big program of work. We are only just starting it at the moment. But I think it's going to be about channel appropriateness. It's going to be about Things like golden numbers, um, making sure your calls rooted or your web chat or your email is rooted to the right team the first time. There's an interesting challenge to identify who who can't and who won't adopt these new technologies. And then a step on from that is once you've identified those, how do you how do you gently kind of nudge them towards the channels that that are really appropriate for them and, and really most appropriate for, for the local authority as well. I mean, I think there's some, there's some ways that you can almost incentivize choosing the right channel. And I think you picked up a couple of things, uh, speed of resolution, um, response rate, um, and, and things like that. And I think one of the things that we're building at the moment at Chelmsford is what we're calling like our, our customer account where you'd be able to authenticate yourself and you'd be able to view all your interactions with the council in, in one place. And obviously, I think, you know, when that information has been submitted digitally, it will appear in there immediately. I think, um, you know, I think it is a difficult one, to be honest. And I think, you know, you have to be careful that you don't make your, you know, you don't kind of... Um, have a negative effect on call times or something. You know, if you want to push people to digital, if people don't answer the phone for 15 minutes, then you know that that kind of makes it a more positive experience. But at the same time, you don't want to take 15 minutes to answer the phone. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think, I mean, a lot of people um, are used to the speed and the availability of, of kind of what I would call kind of web-based, internet-based um, uh, communication. So I think, you know, there's the potential there that what we do is maybe we kind of make our phone lines, maybe they're, they're open for a shorter amount of time. Um, so let's say we might open them from, I don't know, say 10 till 2. And I think that kind of pushes people to another channel if, you know, if it's difficult for them to contact you. But at the same time, you know, we, we've still got to be really aware that people do need to pick up the phone to us. Um, certainly in terms of, of coming in and seeing us, we're... we're, we're getting to a point now where you have to make an appointment to actually come into the office. Um, part of that is to do with safety around around COVID and things. And part of that is because we want to know how to appropriately resource our, our offices now that more people are working from home. You've worked in the, um, the private sector as well as the, the public sector. So I'd be interested to know maybe the, the top two or three differences that um that you've noticed between the between the two sectors yeah i mean i think in certainly in the past in the public sector it's taken us longer to do stuff and longer to get on board with things um and i think in part that's because of the kind of political nature of our organizations and and getting um authorizations to do work or you know you know really having to watch budget lines and things and also the, the people who supply us as well you know we we've got some big suppliers who i'm sure most people recognize who who regularly make news for overrunning or uh, overbilling public sector projects and they tend to be quite monolithic in the way they deal with us mm. i think that the, the private sector does tend to move a bit quicker um you know it's got that that kind of need to get customers and retain customers and, and keep moving keep moving the business forward um you know we've seen a lot of businesses change their business model over the last few years um you know and managing some of them have managed to pivot really quickly others haven't and have seen you know they're kind of sliding to obsolescence especially because you know um the, the, the retail sector has been totally decimated and those without web presence have, you know, have simply um, disappeared. I think one of the things in the that we suffer a little bit in the public sector is managing to uh, recruit and retain good people. Um, at Chelmsford we're doing a lot around graduate level apprenticeships and master level apprenticeships to try and attract people in um, within the digital team at Chelmsford, we, we kind of work on the assumption that people will do, will, will probably be with us for a short amount of time. And by short, I mean, maybe two to three years. And, and I mean, that's been fairly standard in the private sector for a while, but not so much in the public sector. So we're trying to embrace that now and, and build teams who are resilient to that, that change. Um, I think the other thing is, is choice um, in the private sector across, you know, software platforms and 
and thinks you have a lot of choice, whereas perhaps in the public sector there are only two or three suppliers who, um, you know, who, who can do what they need to do. I guess it's it's those suppliers that, that that kind of have done the hard yards in 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 the public sector and in in government. And um, once you've done that, then I think you build up um, a level of knowledge that is very comforting to um, to potential customers. You know, it's certainly a, a fairly tricky sector to get into and to prove that you can do a, a good job there um, and. What you tend to see, in my experience, is um, once you have won a contract and, and you've delivered, then um, there's, there's quite a lot of loyalty from the customers because because they've 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 kind of they put their trust in you. You've, you've done it for them, and um, typically they end up as, as quite sort of sticky customers. And you know, some of the big players like your Microsofts and your Oracles, I think, have have managed to retain customers for, for for years if not decades at times because of that and um that in itself then acts as a as a, as a barrier to, to new entries as well i would um, i would say although i think that's probably changing a lot now with with kind of cloud technology and the um the, the flattening of the of the playing field if you will do you think that's a, a fair comment I mean, absolutely. I think one thing that we're struggling with in the public sector, and honestly, I don't know whether it's a problem in the private sector, but data portability. So these big monolithic systems that we have, um, getting the data out of them and putting it into another provider's cloud or you know platform as a service offering is normally quite costly for us. I think on the flip side of that, we're seeing a lot of innovation with with companies being able to launch really quickly, you know, launching on AWS or Azure and, and saying, you know, getting to market really fast, iterating really quickly. And I think your point about like Microsoft's a really interesting one because um, I mean I've been working in, in IT for for a while um, and you know when I started in the in the industry you know it's where you're running exchange where you're running postfix where you're running um, loads notes you know for your email platform and I certainly think that when Microsoft sold the, stole the lead with what was BPO and then became office 365 I think that shifted a lot of things you know and the skills that that my team have now especially like my infrastructure team in managing azure and office 365 are totally transferable across the whole it sector now and you know it's very rare that you come across an organization who isn't running office 365 or um uh google apps or whatever it's called now or you know or um or one of those platforms and i think that's meant that we've been able to focus our resource a lot better within IT. You know, I don't need to have an Exchange admin anymore because I can pull on the Exchange admin team that runs Office 365. Yeah. You know, in terms of securing my email platform, my email server might sit on the same Exchange cluster, if you will, as a UK bank. Um, so what we're finding now is that Microsoft are doing some of the heavy lifting around some of the infosec elements of our role, allowing us to focus on being an authority rather than focus as being an IT company within an authority. I mean, we've touched upon this uh, a little bit, but can you give me some specific steps that Chelmsford are taking 
on the transformation journey. You made an interesting point earlier, actually, saying um, you've already warned the, the, the kind of the, the organisation that this is probably a never-ending journey simply because of the, the rate and pace of, of change and, and digital, digital innovation. So could you point to maybe two or three ongoing projects that, that make up um, the transformation journey? Now? Well, Dis- funnily enough, we've got three kind of main work streams. We've got what we're calling our productivity work stream, which is the move to Office 365 and embracing everything that that entails. So that might be things like Power Apps, so that teams can develop their own mini apps to help their business processes work smoother. Um, We've got our back office program where we're moving to a single ERP platform and again that's about pulling that data together that's going to be iterative um, and that's a um, software as a service platform now and finally the, the kind of big and complex one for us is our front of office systems um, where we're moving to dynamic CRM um, and within that what we're doing is we're building our own service-based workflows in that we're pulling the data back in to that single golden record and, and, and data collation like you said and i think that that's probably the most i mean it's definitely the most complex work stream that we're looking at and that one will never end because you know what we might do with planning say today might not be what planning looks like in five years um and one thing we're doing with Dynamics, originally we said we'll develop everything in-house. Um, you know, the organisation really bought into that vision and we started delivering some really good work. But the more good work we delivered, the more at pace the organisation wanted to develop, you know, the more they wanted to get into to CRM. So what we've actually done is we, we've kind of loosened our, our thinking around it a little bit. And we're now saying, actually, do you know what? If your service, if you can find the software as a service platform that has a really good open API, then absolutely we're happy for you to buy into that as long as we can do a data interchange with Dynamics, as long as we can get it across our data bus, as long as we can display that information in our customer portal. Actually, how it gets there isn't as important as the fact that it's there. So, for example, um, we've been looking at ticketing systems for our theatres. Um, and we did think about building one, but there's so many innovative products out there that do ticketing really, really well. You know, um, you've got companies like Eventbrite, they actually have a plugin that integrates with Dynamics. You've got small companies like Tickets Ignite, who are really small. They've built this platform from the from the ground up and they're really embedded in this this arts culture. You know, yeah. they're they reinvest some of their profits back into the arts and and back into the into the wider industry and you know for our social values as a local authority that's a really interesting story for us to be able to tell i think it's a really sensible approach because we come across organizations that have a build versus buy culture and you can absolutely see the the benefits of that in terms of molding that solution around your specific needs but Sometimes you do look at them and you think you you kind of you're reinventing the wheel a little bit here, and there are platforms that do this really really well, and there are companies that have based the last two and three years around building a platform, and the 
exchange of data via APIs and the, the, the plug and play nature of these platforms, sometimes kind of just, it just makes sense just to use what's been done well and then yep. morph it into what you've built internally as well. So I definitely think that hybrid approach is, is, is probably the, the most sensible if you have a team the size of yours that can do um, certain bespoke builds, then I think cross-referencing that with with what's out there and, and taking the best of what's out there with the best of what you've built is, I think, is a, a really sensible approach. Yeah, I think, you know, that, that hybrid working gets, it, it does help you with some of the talent management as well. You know, if you've got some third parties who are working with you and perhaps some of the smaller ones as well, where you can help in, with them influence their design. Um, and coming back to your point about data um, portability and stuff, you know, these small companies uh, uh, and these, these these new products that are coming on, they're, you know, we're, we're looking to do some work on our website and one of the quotes came through and says, we don't charge you to export your data because actually, you know, if you're not happy with your platform, if you're not happy with us, that's not the kind of relationship we want to have with our mm-hmm. customers anymore. And, you know, if you want to dump your whole website into a CSV file and go somewhere else, then absolutely we'll do it for you and we'll do it for nothing and we'll do it with no hard feelings. And you think about that and you look back over industry press over the last few years about how much some of the big partner organisations in the public sector um, are, um, a number of them begin with C, but, you know, the, the millions that government organisations are having to pay to get their own data out um, because it's either encrypted at rest or the database structure is built in such a weird way that you'd never be able to extract it yourself. You know, it runs into the millions. We won't elaborate on, on what those companies could be, but I think... I think. <laughs> um, I mean, do you feel that there's a, there's, a, there's a period of catch-up and then an ongoing period of business as usual whereby the... Um, you're just keeping abreast of innovations and just making sure that, you know, anything that comes out that's appropriate to the organization is, is investigated and potentially deployed. Um, Honestly, I hope so. Um, I don't think we're certainly not there yet. Um, I don't think a lot of local authorities or, or wider public sector are there yet. You know, we have fallen behind quite a long way. Um, But, Absolutely, I think so. And I think, you know, going back to the software as a service and, 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 and things, actually that, that gives us a lot more free time to investigate other things. Um, so, you know, you don't have to worry about upgrading Office on people's machines anymore. You don't have to worry about upgrading Exchange or SharePoint or Teams or Link or Skype or whatever it's called now. Um, you know, and that, that frees us up to be able to keep the organisations up to date. I think... For me, I'm a little bit disappointed that we haven't been able to get there quicker. But, you know, when you consider that local authorities were still taking out AS400 a couple of years ago, I think we've come a long way. Um, but things like smart speakers and, and Internet things, um, I think we're probably going to be late to that party as well. But I think, you know, as new things come out, I think we'll be in a much better place to adopt them really quickly. Yeah, and that's a really interesting point, actually, that, um, you know, the very nature of, of SaaS platforms is freeing up your time that was typically spent, by the sounds of it, on 
just maintaining kind of on-prem software and, and, and hard, well, hardware to a lesser extent, I guess, as so that hasn't been as affected by, by SaaS. But um, yeah, the fact that SaaS products just kind of get updates pushed and, and they, they just work frees up your, your, your time that was previously spent on um, maintaining on-prem. I consider that some of these platforms that we run um, internally for things like uh, maybe housing or revs and bends or, you know, um, planning and stuff, some of these upgrades can take us kind of three months of planning and testing and upgrading to, to put in, and that's a huge chunk of the team's time. Um, you know, our, our ERP platform has a twice yearly release. They inform us what the changes are. They let us test the new release in our in our test environment. And then, you know, it gets applied to our, um, our live environment. And it's really good for us from an IT perspective because we, we really want to deliver a good service. And part of that would be, you know, in the past, our finance team might say, actually, you can't run the upgrades this weekend because we've got a uh, month end or year end or a random report we've got to run. And actually, you know, you end up, you can end up kicking a platform down into the long grass for maybe two years. And then by which point, your upgrade is a bit of a panic. And, yeah. you know, you have to pile a load of resource into it to make sure you can make the deadlines where perhaps, you know, the law around tax has changed and we have to apply this hotfix, but we can't apply the hotfix to the platform's two years old. And that consumes so much organisation time in the finance team, you know, budget managers across the organisation, management team, IT. And, you know, that's just been removed from us now and it's great. So... When you're looking at the success or, or otherwise of, of, of these projects, and I know you say you've got three kind of mega projects, if you like, but presumably there are um, sub-projects within there. Do you have a, a set of KPIs that, that you, you measure success against? And um, if you do, what, what are they? Or if, our, if organizations are looking at some of this kind of digital transformation work, um, can you share any KPIs that, that maybe they should consider to ascertain how things have gone? Yeah, I mean, we don't we don't really have any formal KPIs. Um, I think you know we do we do a lot of talking with the organisation now. I think you know um, KPIs are so difficult to get right. Um, you know, if you take the traditional service desk example, say. You know, you might have a KPI on the number of calls you logged. Well, what does what does that actually mean? You know, why does it matter that we had a thousand calls? What actually matters is what those calls were about. You know, were they about password reset? It's about the trend analysis of those calls. You know, are they all password resets? Are they all, um, you know, around file permissions? How can we automate that and stuff? So I think what we're doing more than KPIs and absolutely we do report to management team around things like budgets and time scales and project deadlines and bits of work that we've got coming up and how long we think we've taken the fiscal impact of those but I think in terms of KPIs we're much more interested in getting the feedback from the organisation than we are trying and I think it's not that we don't believe in KPIs, it's just that we've found it too hard to find something that would be a really useful indicator of how things are going. You know, is it how many records we've got in CRM? Is it how many financial transactions fail in or succeed in ERP? So I think 
it's something we're working on as an organisation across the organisation about KPIs and about managing risk um, and about interacting with all because they're all really, really important. But it's about changing the narrative around what a KPI is. I think you know your traditional KPIs don't really apply in a in a in a SaaS world. Mm. You know you've got things like downtime. What does that mean? Uh, number of calls logged. What does that mean? First time fix. Obviously that's quite a useful one. Um, but unless you look at the detail of some of the KPIs, that you know that they're, they're pretty meaningless. Um, unless you want to look at really general trends. That's kind of where we are at the moment um, and what we're doing. You know, we meet with management team regularly as a digital team. We meet with management team regularly as part of the digital portfolio that I talked about. We spend a lot of time talking with other services in the organisation. When we're doing development for them in our ERP or, or CRM, we actually invite them into the sprints and we, we invite them into our agile way of working to make sure we can iterate what they want really fast. Presumably, um, an ever-deepening data pool is, is going to help you go much further on, on those KPIs. If you can collate more data, whether that be conversational data from um, chatbots or from kind of recorded phone calls, that's where you can start to identify much kind of deeper trends around why are people contacting us? When are they contacting us? Um, how well are we dealing with that, that contact in terms of resolutions that, that we can find, um, the channels that they're coming through on? Um, would it be fair to say that the, the, the collection, collation, and kind of maybe even visualization of that data is, is, is quite important in really understanding what people want and how you can serve them. Um, it's absolutely critical, um, you know, and I think something that perhaps we didn't spend much time on talking about earlier is about those channels of, of coming into our customer contact centre. And in my mind, I think, you know, chatbots and automation through them is fundamental in being able to build a better service so you know you go on some websites and their chatbots uh, you know they're, they're worse than useless they just say you know um oh i can't help you with that pick up the phone what we want to do is we want to build a chatbot experience that says thanks for telling me that you missed your bid i've reported it for you because i have all the information that i've either got from your account because you've authenticated yourself or when i got the information from you early on in the conversation you know not not without you knowing but without you having to think about it you know when I first started talking to you I asked for your name and your postcode I've got those now I've already, got, know, that, yeah. I've already got that information I'm not going to send you to a web form to complete I'm not going to recommend you call this number and and actually that that web chat journey is probably and, and chatbot journey is probably the richest amount of data that we don't have at the moment. You know, that seam of data where you can see what people are typing in, you can see where you're failing to answer um, questions and you, you're ending up pushing people to that phone channel or that email channel. Um, you know, there's no reason why we couldn't do an end-to-end -end benefits application within a, within a chatbot world. Um, and we can really automate that process. And at the end of the process, you know, the chatbot gives them a PDF that says, you know, here's your certificate for whatever, or here's your letter of confirmation that you'll start receiving this, or, you know, we've recorded your complaint and this is the person dealing with it, or 
we know we missed your bin. Actually, the crews are still out on their round. They'll be back later this morning to collect it. And actually, you know, you, you know, we're talking about how do you get people away from the phone and stuff. If you have a rich experience like that within a chatbot that you do get with some companies, then why would you ever pick up the phone again? You know, if you suddenly re remember at 11 o'clock at night as you're going up to bed that, you know, oh, or, or you want to log a noise complaint at 11 o'clock at night or your neighbour's dog's barking or, you know, or whatever. If you can go onto our website and initiate that conversation, even though there's no one in the office, and you get a satisfactory outcome, you'll probably never pick up the phone to us again, which is a real win for everyone involved. So I think just just picking up on what you said, I think it's probably the richest data stream. You know, call text analysis. Yeah, I mean, it's getting there, but it's not going to be anything special for a while. Email is a very slow kind of two-way conversation. So I think it's absolutely key. And it's definitely something that we're feeding into our customer service contact centre program of work that we're starting. Yeah, we 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 completely concur. We we talk about conversational data probably being the the richest untapped resource at the disposal of any organization at the moment. Um, there's so much kind of qualitative and quantitative data that you can that you can pull from that. And the challenge there is, as you say, making sure that the chatbot or the, the kind of the automation experience is is a good enough one that people keep coming back because it only needs to be bad once and they won't come back. We, we, we talk a lot about intelligent automation via conversation and I think that's where the world's going and that's certainly where, where we want to take things whereby you basically say what you want and with a couple of triage questions, a process is triggered and the outcome comes back to you in 90 seconds and not a kind of six, seven minute phone call that is not just frustrating from a citizen perspective, but is also expensive from a from a, an authority's perspective to, to man those calls. And when you see the volume of those calls that could and, and frankly should be automated, you know, the savings can be quite fundamental. The challenge still remains of getting those people, we touched on this earlier, getting those people into that channel. Once they're in and they have a good experience, then you know, I think I think everybody wins. Um, but it's identifying the people for whom that type of channel is appropriate and trying to get them in there. And you made a really good point earlier about maybe having restricted times around the phone lines and, and, and maybe trying to ascertain when those times should be based on who's in work, who's not in work, when would vulnerable citizens most be likely to to contact you and, and trying to align phone line times, for example, with that data. But, you know, again, it all comes back to having that data and understanding that data and, and then um, acting on that data. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think that's something that, that sometimes gets missed, the fact that you do actually need to act on the data that you've got. You know, it's all very well having this, you know, this mine of data that you can do all sorts of amazing things with, with, with tools like Power BI or, you know, you know other tools are available at Power BI as part of our Office 365. Mm -hmm. But it's knowing what questions to ask that data. It's knowing how to use those tools to get the information that you need. And it comes back to the point about KPIs, you know, KPIs for KPIs sake. Actually, what you want to do is if you can start using natural language to interrogate that data and make it really sync for your organisation, then it's amazing. You know, you don't want it just to become another task you have to do or another 
you know, another process that you have to report to management team. It really needs to, it needs to offer real benefit for you and the organisation and your services and, and ultimately the customer. Funny enough, it, it, it is actually something that, that, we're, that we're working on, um, collecting chatbot data, but then having a chatbot to interrogate that data. So, you know, can you pull up a, give me a graph of all the people that have mentioned flooding in the last two days on the such and such road and um, being able to interrogate the data using natural language understanding or, or natural language processing is, um, is something that we think could be very, very powerful because you're right, there's so many organisations that have data and the thought of trying to pull the insights from that data to be able to act on them is is actually quite daunting and therefore they collect data and, and never actually um, use it to improve services. Yeah, and I think, you know, Im improving services and, you know, making the, the chat pop you know, chatbots and things more interactive and, and, and helping them learn what customers ask. You know, there's so many different ways to ask the same question. Mm -hmm. um, and I think for me, potentially, with my, my fully IT hat on, what's going to be more interesting in that day is, isn't the successes. You know, the successes are amazing and we should celebrate them. But what's going to be interesting to me is where these systems and platforms are letting us down or where we're failing to deliver the experience that customers want you know why did this person stop interacting with the chatbot after three minutes was it because it was taking too long you know why did we abandon this call why did this email take 14 days to reply to and, and trying to pull that together and say actually what should have happened is this email should have gone to this person or actually this chatbot should have been transferred to a person uh, you know in our customer contact center or one of of our services a lot sooner than it did you know you can see by the language in the emails or or the language that's being used in the chatbot that someone's getting frustrated or angry and what they want to do is just resolve their problem with us you learn from those failings and and, and improve off the back of those failings then you know they actually become a lot more powerful than the than the wins um all right michael well we're, we're, we're nearly there i was just going to ask if you had between three and five takeaways to, to anyone um, for, or for anyone that, that's listening to this? Um, I think the first one is probably do things fast. You know, um, things like Office 365 migration, you can spend years and years planning or you can just do it over like two or three months. And we found that actually if you do something really fast, you don't get any more complaints than if you do something really slow. Um, you know, so we, we, we've really started buying into the 80-20 rule um, around um, delivery when it's involved in a SaaS product. I think that's, that's really important. I think engaging the business in everything you do, you know, you, it's very rare you hear of anyone saying, oh, I've been over-engaged on this project, um, you know, or oh man i wish it would stop talking to us about this thing they're doing for us you know you, you just don't you, you don't get that kind of feedback so things like when you're doing in-house development be it power apps or you know dynamics or, or you know any other kind of low code or or no code platform or any development you know invite the business in to be part of the process let them understand you know how a two-week sprint works how user acceptance testing works how 
bug reports and feature requests artwork after a release, you know, engage them really frequently and really often. You know, they can they can they can say no to meetings and that's fine, but just try and engage them as much as you can. And I think probably the third bit of advice I'd give is make sure there's loads of training resource available for people. So in the past, local authorities and, 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 and private sector and you know the whole kind of world you do a lot of chalk and talk you know oh there's a new major version of office coming out let's run day-long introduction to office 2003 sessions you know and people give up a day and they find out where the bold button was in word and the, you know and it'd be amazing but you know the world's iterating a lot faster now um so what we did was we put on a load of what we called the buzz days which was just getting people to an informal meeting room and saying look at this amazing thing that office 365 can do in word or look at this amazing thing that you can you can do in teams or OneNote or, or whatever and we, we've slowly phased out a lot of the chalk and talk stuff around major releases and i think you know when was the last you know when you when you kind of turn it around to your users a little bit and say when was the last time you read a manual for the new smartphone you got you know when was the last time apple put a manual for the iphone in the box or or samsung or google or whoever you know when you buy an alexa speak when you buy any technology now be it alexa speaker or mobile phone if you're lucky you'll get a card in there with a qr code mm -hmm. that you can scan and it'll give you a little bit of information but actually, that's the way the world is now. You know, you don't need to train to the nth degree. You don't need to get people in a meeting room for a day to show them how to use Word or Outlook or OneNote or whatever. And I think that's that's kind of changed the, the organisational culture a little bit. And people aren't so scared to try things, which feeds perfectly back into the innovation and the constant evolution of the digital transformation journey. I think that's something that that's, that that SaaS companies are acutely aware of as well. You know, nobody wants to sit and learn how to use your product. Okay, there may be another level of usability that you can get out of it um, for super users and things like that. But you want to be able to open the box or go onto a browser and really start using it. And, you know, a couple of, I think you called them buzz days, a couple of kind of hours in, in one of those sessions and you should really be ready to go. Or certainly, certainly be able to use that platform. And then you know you can you can get into the into the bowels of that platform at a later date should you need to, but certainly from a just out of the box be able to use that product or platform. I think it kind of seems to be the way that both software and, and hardware design is is going um, and has been for a number of years. Yeah, absolutely. The last one we always like to finish on. What are you um, currently reading or, or listening to that you think could be? could be useful or, or enjoyable to everyone? Uh, in, in the main, I think, you know, books. Um, I mean, I've got a Kindle. I tend to read a lot of really easy reading things to help it. I find it helps me kind of unwind at the end of the day. So that they, Kindle Unlimited is a great resource for that. Um, I recently bought um, a book on uh, Admiral Grace Hopper, who was a really big figure in um, US Navy computing and stuff. Uh, it was allegedly her who coined the term bug and things, and that was really interesting. In terms of podcasts, um, I commute into Chelmsford from Norwich um, once a week, 
and so we get a lot of time to listen to podcasts in the car and I think you know the last year we've seen an explosion of some some really great technical resources Microsoft run a really good podcast um, series there's the Haunted Hacker um, podcasts which are amazing um, in terms I listen to quite a few history podcasts as well um, Ross Kemp um, has recently started doing podcasts um, called Kempcast, and he interviews some really interesting people um, who are involved in kind of law enforcement and things. And there's some really great things about digging into how criminals think and stuff. And that's such an important topic in in IT at the moment. Um, yeah, so many podcasts. Excellent. Okay, Michael. Listen, thanks very much for your time. Good luck with the everything that, that you've got going on and um, I hope everyone enjoyed the, the session brilliant thank you very much so there we have it pod number two thanks for listening everybody here at we build bots we work with local government utilities and a number of other sectors to understand and help to facilitate their digital transformation journey we'd love to hear your story so please do drop us a line if you feel that um, you want to share your knowledge your best practices and support the community as we all embark on this challenging digital transformation journey thanks for listening and see you on the next one